Book twenty two, chapters twenty six through thirty of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book twenty two. CHAPTER Twenty Six. But, say they, Porphyry tells us that the soul, in order to be blessed, must escape connection with every kind of body. It does not avail, therefore, to say that the future body shall be incorruptible, if the soul cannot be blessed till delivered from every kind of body. But in the book mentioned above I have already sufficiently discussed this. This one thing only will I repeat. Let Plato, their master, correct his writings, and say that their gods, in order to be blessed, must quit their bodies, or, in their words, die. For he said that they were shut up in celestial bodies, and that nevertheless the God who made them promised them immortality that is to say, an eternal tenure of these same bodies, such as was not provided for them naturally, but only by the further intervention of his will, that thus they might be assured of felicity. In this he obviously overturns their assertion that the resurrection of the body cannot be believed because it is impossible. For, according to him, when the uncreated God promised immortality to the created gods, he expressly said that he would do what was impossible. For Plato tells us that he said, As ye have had a beginning, so you cannot be immortal and incorruptible. Yet ye shall not decay, nor shall any fate destroy you, or prove stronger than my will, which more effectually binds you to immortality than the bond of your nature keeps you from it. If they who hear these words have, we do not say understanding, but ears, they cannot doubt that Plato believed that God promised to the gods he had made that he would effect an impossibility. For he who says, Ye cannot be immortal, but by my will ye shall be immortal, what else does he say than this, I shall make you what ye cannot be? The body, therefore, shall be raised incorruptible, immortal, spiritual, by him who, according to Plato, has promised to do that which is impossible. Why then do they still exclaim that this which God has promised, which the world has believed on God's promise, as was predicted, is an impossibility? For what we say is that the God who, even according to Plato, does impossible things, will do this. It is not, then, necessary to the blessedness of the soul that it be detached from a body of any kind whatever, but that it receive an incorruptible body. And in what incorruptible body will they more suitably rejoice than in that in which they groaned when it was corruptible? For thus they shall not feel that dire craving which Virgil, in imitation of Plato, has ascribed to them when he says that they wish to return again to their bodies. 
they shall not, I say, feel this desire to return to their bodies, since they shall have those bodies to which a return was desired, and shall indeed be in such thorough possession of them, that they shall never lose them, even for the briefest moment, nor ever lay them down in death. CHAPTER Twenty Seven. Statements were made by Plato and Porphyry singly, which, if they could have seen their way to hold in common, they might possibly have become Christians. Plato said that souls could not exist eternally without bodies, for it was on this account, he said, that the souls even of wise men must some time or other return to their bodies. Porphyry, again, said that the purified soul, when it has returned to the Father, shall never return to the ills of this world. Consequently, if Plato had communicated to Porphyry that which he saw to be true, that souls, though perfectly purified, and belonging to the wise and righteous, must return to human bodies, and if porphyry again had imparted to plato the truth which he saw that holy soul shall never return to the miseries of a corruptible body so that they should not have held each only his own opinion but should have held both truths i think they would have seen that it follows that the souls return to their bodies and also that these bodies shall be such as to afford them a blessed and immortal life for according to plato even holy souls shall return to the body according to porphyry holy souls shall not return to the ills of this world let porphyry then say with plato they shall return to the body let plato say with porphyry they shall not return to their old misery and they will agree that they return to bodies in which they shall suffer no more and this is nothing else than what God has promised, that he will give eternal felicity to souls joined to their own bodies. For this, I presume, both of them would readily concede, that if the souls of the saints are to be reunited to bodies, it shall be to their own bodies, in which they have endured the miseries of this life, and in which, to escape these miseries, they served God with piety and fidelity. CHAPTER Twenty Eight. Some Christians who have a liking for Plato on account of his magnificent style, and the truths which he now and then uttered, say that he even held an opinion similar to our own regarding the resurrection of the dead. Cicero, however, alluding to this in his Republic, asserts that Plato meant it rather as a playful fancy than as a reality, for he introduces a man who had come to life again, and gave a narrative of his experience in corroboration of the doctrines of Plato. Labeo, too, says that two men died on one day, and met at a cross-road, and that being afterwards ordered to return to their bodies, they agreed to be friends for life, and were so till they died again. But the resurrection which these writers instance resembles that of those persons whom we have ourselves known to rise again, and who came back indeed to this life, but not so as never to die again. 
Marcus Varro, however, in his work on the origin of the Roman people, records something more remarkable. I think his own words should be given. Certain astrologers, he says, have written that men are destined to a new birth, which the Greeks call palingenesy. This will take place after four hundred and forty years have elapsed, and then the same soul and the same body which were formerly united in the person shall again be reunited. This Varro, indeed, or those nameless astrologers, for he does not give us the names of the men whose statement he cites, have affirmed what is indeed not altogether true, for once the souls have returned to the bodies they wore, they shall never afterwards leave them. Yet what they say upsets and demolishes much of that idle talk of our adversaries about the impossibility of the resurrection. For those who have been, or are, of this opinion, have not thought it possible that bodies which have dissolved into air, or dust, or ashes, or water, or into the bodies of the beasts, or even of the men that fed on them, should be restored again to that which they formerly were. And therefore, if Plato and Porphyry, or rather, if their disciples now living, agree with us that holy souls shall return to the body, as Plato says, and that nevertheless they shall not return to misery, as Porphyry maintains, if they can accept the consequence of these two propositions which is taught by the Christian faith, that they shall receive bodies in which they may live eternally without suffering any misery, let them also adopt from Varro the opinion that they shall return to the same bodies as they were formerly in, and thus the whole question of the eternal resurrection of the body shall be resolved out of their own mouths. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. And now let us consider with such ability as God may vouchsafe how the saints shall be employed when they are clothed in immortal and spiritual bodies, and when the flesh shall live no longer in a fleshly but a spiritual fashion. And indeed, to tell the truth, I am at a loss to understand the nature of that employment, or, shall I rather say, repose and ease, for it has never come within the range of my bodily senses. And if I should speak of my mind or understanding, what is our understanding in comparison of its excellence? For then shall be that peace of God which, as the Apostle says, passeth all understanding, that is to say, all human and perhaps all angelic understanding, but certainly not the divine. That it passeth ours, there is no doubt, but if it passeth that of the angels, and he who says all understanding seems to make no exception in their favour, then we must understand him to mean that neither we nor the angels can understand, as God understands, the peace which God himself enjoys. Doubtless this passeth all understanding but his own. But as we shall one day be made to participate, according to our slender capacity, in his peace, both in ourselves and with our neighbour, and with God our chief good, in this respect the angels understand the peace of God in their own measure, and men too, though now far behind them, whatever spiritual advance they have made. 
for we must remember how great a man he was who said, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, until that which is perfect is come, and now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Such also is now the vision of the holy angels, who are also called our angels, because we, being rescued out of the power of darkness, and receiving the earnest of the Spirit, are translated into the kingdom of Christ, and already begin to belong to those angels with whom we shall enjoy that holy and most delightful city of God, of which we have now written so much. Thus then the angels of God are our angels, as Christ is God's, and also ours. They are God's because they have not abandoned him, they are ours because we are their fellow citizens. The Lord Jesus also said, See that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you, that in heaven their angels do always see the face of my Father which is in heaven. As then they see, so shall we also see, but not yet do we thus see. Wherefore the apostle uses the words cited a little ago, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. This vision is reserved as the reward of our faith, and of it the apostle John also says, When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. By the face of God we are to understand his manifestation, and not a part of the body similar to that which in our bodies we call by that name. And so, when I am asked how the saints shall be employed in that spiritual body, I do not say what I see, but I say what I believe, according to that which I read in the psalm, I believed, therefore have I spoken. I say then, they shall, in the body, see God, but whether they shall see him by means of the body, as now we see the sun, moon, stars, sea, earth, and all that is in it, that is a difficult question. For it is hard to say that the saints shall then have such bodies that they shall not be able to shut and open their eyes as they please, while it is harder still to say that every one who shuts his eyes shall lose the vision of God. For if the prophet Elisha, though at a distance, saw his servant Gehazi, who thought that his wickedness would escape his master's observation, and accepted gifts from Naaman the Syrian, whom the prophet had cleansed from his foul leprosy, how much more shall the saints in the spiritual body see all things, not only though their eyes be shut, but though they themselves be at a great distance? For then shall be that which is perfect, of which the apostle says, We know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Then, that he may illustrate as well as possible, by a simile, how superior the future life is to the life now lived, not only by ordinary men, but even by the foremost of the saints, he says, When I was a child, I understood as a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, 
I put away childish things. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. If, then, even in this life, in which the prophetic power of remarkable men is no more worthy to be compared to the vision of the future life than childhood is to manhood, Elisha, though distant from his servant, saw him accepting gifts, shall we say that when that which is perfect is come, and the corruptible body no longer oppresses the soul, but is incorruptible, and offers no impediment to it, the saints shall need bodily eyes to see, though Elisha had no need of them to see his servant. For, following the Septuagint version, these are the prophet's words, Did not my heart go with thee, when the man came out of his chariot to meet thee, and thou tookest his gifts? Or, as the presbyter Jerome rendered it from the Hebrew, was not my heart present when the man turned from his chariot to meet thee? The prophet said that he saw this with his heart, miraculously aided by God, as no one can doubt. But how much more abundantly shall the saints enjoy this gift, when God shall be all in all? Nevertheless the bodily eyes also shall have their office and their place, and shall be used by the spirit through the spiritual body. For the prophet did not forego the use of his eyes for seeing what was before them, though he did not need them to see his absent servant, and though he could have seen these present objects in spirit, and with his eyes shut, as he saw things far distant in a place where he himself was not. Far be it, then, from us to say that in the life to come the saints shall not see God when their eyes are shut, since they shall always see him with the Spirit. But the question arises whether, when their eyes are open, they shall see him with the bodily eye. If the eyes of the spiritual body have no more power than the eyes which we now possess, manifestly God cannot be seen with them. They must be of a very different power, if they can look upon that incorporeal nature which is not contained in any place, but is all in every place. For though we say that God is in heaven and on earth, as he himself says by the prophet, I fill heaven and earth, we do not mean that there is one part of God in heaven and another part on earth, but he is all in heaven and all on earth not at alternate intervals of time, but both at once, as no bodily nature can be. The eye, then, shall have a vastly superior power, the power not of keen sight, such as is ascribed to serpents or eagles, for however keenly these animals see, they can discern nothing but bodily substances, but the power of seeing things incorporeal. Possibly it was this great power of vision which was temporarily communicated to the eyes of the holy Job, while yet in this mortal body, when he says to God, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself, and melt away, and count myself dust and ashes. 
although there is no reason why we should not understand this of the eye of the heart, of which the apostle says, Having the eyes of your heart illuminated. But that God shall be seen with these eyes, no Christian doubts, who believingly accepts what our Master and God says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But whether in the future life God shall also be seen with the bodily eye, this is now our question. The expression of Scripture, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, may without difficulty be understood as if it were said, And every man shall see the Christ of God. And he certainly was seen in the body, and shall be seen in the body when he judges quick and dead. And that Christ is the salvation of God, many other passages of Scripture witness, but especially the words of the venerable Simeon, who, when he had received into his hands the infant Christ, said, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. As for the words of the above-mentioned Job, as they are found in the Hebrew manuscripts, and in my flesh I shall see God, no doubt they were a prophecy of the resurrection of the flesh, yet he does not say, by the flesh. And indeed, if he had said this, it would still be possible that Christ was meant by God, for Christ shall be seen by the flesh in the flesh. But even understanding it of God, it is only equivalent to saying, I shall be in the flesh when I see God. Then the apostle's expression, face to face, does not oblige us to believe that we shall see God by the bodily face in which are the eyes of the body, for we shall see him without intermission in spirit. And if the apostle had not referred to the face of the inner man, he would not have said, but we, with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. In the same sense we understand what the psalmist sings, Draw near unto him, and be enlightened, and your faces shall not be ashamed. For it is by faith we draw near to God, and faith is an act of the spirit, not of the body. But as we do not know what degree of perfection the spiritual body shall attain, for here we speak of a matter of which we have no experience, and upon which the authority of Scripture does not definitely pronounce, it is necessary that the words of the Book of Wisdom be illustrated in us. The thoughts of mortal men are timid, and our forecastings uncertain. For if that reasoning of the philosophers, by which they attempt to make out that intelligible or mental objects are so seen by the mind, and sensible or bodily objects so seen by the body, that the former cannot be discerned by the mind through the body, nor the latter by the mind itself without the body, if this reasoning were trustworthy, then it would certainly follow that God could not be seen by the eye, even of a spiritual body. But this reasoning is exploded both by true reason and by prophetic authority. 
for who is so little acquainted with the truth as to say that God has no cognizance of sensible objects? Has he therefore a body, the eyes of which give him this knowledge? Moreover, what we have just been relating of the prophet Elisha, does this not sufficiently show that bodily things can be discerned by the spirit without the help of the body? For when that servant received the gifts, certainly this was a bodily or material transaction. Yet the prophet saw it not by the body, but by the spirit. As, therefore, it is agreed that bodies are seen by the spirit, what if the power of the spiritual body shall be so great that spirit also is seen by the body? For God is a spirit. Besides, each man recognizes his own life, that life by which he now lives in the body, and which vivifies these earthly members and causes them to grow, by an interior sense and not by his bodily eye. But the life of other men, though it is invisible, he sees with the bodily eye. For how do we distinguish between living and dead bodies, except by seeing at once both the body and the life which we cannot see save by the eye? But a life without a body we cannot see thus. Wherefore it may very well be, and it is thoroughly credible, that we shall in the future world see the material forms of the new heavens and the new earth, in such a way that we shall most distinctly recognize God everywhere present and governing all things, material as well as spiritual, and shall see him, not as now we understand the invisible things of God by the things which are made, and see him darkly as in a mirror, and in part, and rather by faith than by bodily vision of material appearances, but by means of the bodies we shall wear, and which we shall see wherever we turn our eyes. As we do not believe, but see that the living men around us, who are exercising vital functions, are alive, though we cannot see their life without their bodies, but see it most distinctly by means of their bodies, so, wherever we shall look with those spiritual eyes of our future bodies, we shall then too by means of bodily substances behold God, though a spirit, ruling all things. Either, therefore, the eyes shall possess some quality similar to that of the mind, by which they may be able to discern spiritual things, and among these God, a supposition for which it is difficult or even impossible to find any support in Scripture, or, which is more easy to comprehend, God will be so known by us, and shall be so much before us, that we shall see him by the Spirit in ourselves, in one another, in himself, in the new heavens and the new earth, in every created thing which shall then exist, and also by the body we shall see him in every body which the keen vision of the eye of the spiritual body shall reach. Our thoughts also shall be visible to all, for then shall be fulfilled the words of the Apostle, Judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the thoughts of the heart, and then shall every one have praise of God. Chapter 30 
How great shall be that felicity, which shall be tainted with no evil, which shall lack no good, and which shall afford leisure for the praises of God, who shall be all in all? For I know not what other employment there can be, where no lassitude shall slacken activity, nor any want stimulate to labor. I am admonished also by the sacred song, in which I read or hear the words, Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, O Lord, they will still be praising thee. All the members and organs of the incorruptible body, which now we see to be suited to various necessary uses, shall contribute to the praises of God, for in that life necessity shall have no place, but full, certain, secure, everlasting felicity. For all those parts of the bodily harmony which are distributed through the whole body, within and without, and of which I have just been saying that they at present elude our observation, shall then be discerned, and, along with the other great and marvellous discoveries which shall then kindle rational minds in praise of the great artificer, there shall be the enjoyment of a beauty which appeals to the reason." What power of movement such bodies shall possess, I have not the audacity rashly to define, as I have not the ability to conceive. Nevertheless, I will say that in any case, both in motion and at rest, they shall be, as in their appearance, seemly. For into that state nothing which is unseemly shall be admitted." One thing is certain, the body shall forthwith be wherever the spirit wills, and the spirit shall will nothing which is unbecoming either to the spirit or to the body. True honour shall be there, for it shall be denied to none who is worthy, nor yielded to any unworthy. Neither shall any unworthy person so much as sue for it, for none but the worthy shall be there." true peace shall be there, where no one shall suffer opposition either from himself or any other. God himself, who is the author of virtue, shall there be its reward, for, as there is nothing greater or better, he has promised himself. What else was meant by his word through the prophet, I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, than, I shall be their satisfaction, I shall be all that men honourably desire, life and health and nourishment and plenty and glory and honour and peace and all good things. This too is the right interpretation of the saying of the Apostle, that God may be all in all. He shall be the end of our desires, who shall be seen without end, loved without cloy, praised without weariness. This outgoing of affection, this employment, shall certainly be, like eternal life itself, common to all. But who can conceive, not to say describe, what degrees of honour and glory shall be awarded to the various degrees of merit? Yet it cannot be doubted that there shall be degrees, 
and in that blessed city there shall be this great blessing that no inferior shall envy any superior as now the archangels are not envied by the angels because no one will wish to be what he has not received though bound in strictest concord with him who has received as in the body the finger does not seek to be the eye though both members are harmoniously included in the complete structure of the body and thus along with his gift greater or less each shall receive this further gift of contentment to desire no more than he has neither are we to suppose that because sin shall have no power to delight them free will must be withdrawn it will, on the contrary, be all the more truly free, because set free from delight in sinning, to take unfailing delight in not sinning. For the first freedom of will which man received when he was created upright consisted in an ability not to sin, but also in an ability to sin whereas this last freedom of will shall be superior, inasmuch as it shall not be able to sin. This indeed shall not be a natural ability, but the gift of God. For it is one thing to be God, another thing to be a partaker of God. God by nature cannot sin, but the partaker of God receives this inability from God. And in this divine gift there was to be observed this gradation, that man should first receive a free will by which he was able not to sin, and at last a free will by which he was not able to sin, the former being adapted to the acquiring of merit, the latter to the enjoying of the reward. But the nature thus constituted, having sinned when it had the ability to do so, it is by a more abundant grace that it is delivered so as to reach that freedom in which it cannot sin. For as the first immortality which Adam lost by sinning consisted in his being able not to die, while the last shall consist in his not being able to die, so the first free will consisted in his being able not to sin, the last in his not being able to sin. And thus piety and justice shall be as indefeasible as happiness. For certainly by sinning we lost both piety and happiness, but when we lost happiness we did not lose the love of it. Are we to say that God himself is not free because he cannot sin? In that city, then, there shall be free will, one in all the citizens, and indivisible in each, delivered from all ill, filled with all good, enjoying indefeasibly the delights of eternal joys, oblivious of sins, oblivious of sufferings, and yet not so oblivious of its deliverance as to be ungrateful to its deliverer. The soul, then, shall have an intellectual remembrance of its past ills, but so far as regards sensible experience, they shall be quite forgotten. For a skilful physician knows, indeed, professionally, almost all diseases, but experimentally he is ignorant of a great number which he himself has never suffered from. As, therefore, there are two ways of knowing evil things, 
one by mental insight, the other by sensible experience, for it is one thing to understand all vices by the wisdom of a cultivated mind, another to understand them by the foolishness of an abandoned life. So also there are two ways of forgetting evils. For a well-instructed and learned man forgets them one way, and he who has experimentally suffered from them forgets them another, the former by neglecting what he has learned, the latter by escaping what he has suffered. And in this latter way the saints shall forget their past ills, for they shall have so thoroughly escaped them all, that they shall be quite blotted out of their experience." but their intellectual knowledge which shall be great shall keep them acquainted not only with their own past woes but with the eternal sufferings of the lost for if they were not to know that they had been miserable how could they as the psalmist says for ever sing the mercies of god certainly that city shall have no greater joy than the celebration of the grace of christ who redeemed us by his blood there shall be accomplished the words of the psalm, Be still, and know that I am God. There shall the great Sabbath, which has no evening, which God celebrated among his first works, as it is written, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God began to make. For we shall ourselves be the seventh day when we shall be filled and replenished with God's blessing and sanctification. There shall we be still and know that he is God, that he is that which we ourselves aspired to be when we fell away from him, and listened to the voice of the seducer, ye shall be as gods, and so abandoned God, who would have made us as gods not by deserting him, but by participating in him. For without him what have we accomplished, save to perish in his anger? But when we are restored by him, and perfected with greater grace, we shall have eternal leisure to see that he is God, for we shall be full of him, when he shall be all in all. For even our good works, when they are understood to be rather his than ours, are imputed to us, that we may enjoy this Sabbath rest. For if we attribute them to ourselves, they shall be servile. For it is said of the Sabbath, Ye shall do no servile work in it. Wherefore also it is said by Ezekiel the prophet, And I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctify them. This knowledge shall be perfected when we shall be perfectly at rest, and shall perfectly know that he is God. This Sabbath shall appear still more clearly if we count the ages as days in accordance with the periods of time defined in Scripture, for that period will be found to be the seventh. The first age, as the first day, extends from Adam to the deluge, the second from the deluge to Abraham, equaling the first, not in length of time, but in the number of generations, there being ten in each. 
from Abraham to the advent of Christ there are, as the evangelist Matthew calculates, three periods, in each of which are fourteen generations, one period from Abraham to David, a second from David to the captivity, a third from the captivity to the birth of Christ in the flesh. There are thus five ages in all. The sixth is now passing, and cannot be measured by any number of generations, as it has been said, It is not for you to know the times which the Father hath put in his own power. After this period God shall rest as on the seventh day, when he shall give us, who shall be the seventh day, rest in himself. But there is not now space to treat of these ages. Suffice it to say that the seventh shall be our Sabbath, which shall be brought to a close not by an evening, but by the Lord's day, as an eighth and eternal day, consecrated by the resurrection of Christ, and prefiguring the eternal repose not only of the spirit, but also of the body. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom of which there is no end? I think I have now, by God's help, discharged my obligation in writing this large work. Let those who think I have said too little, or those who think I have said too much, forgive me, and let those who think I have said just enough join me in giving thanks to God. Amen. End of the City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org